Are you ready to take your message, your business, and your life to the next level? Want to learn from someone with more than a decade of experience, training tens of thousands of people from all around the world? Hi, Cliff. This is Pauline from Auckland, New Zealand. John from Calgary, Alberta. Amy Porterfield. Michael Hyatt. Dan here from Dunedin, New Zealand. Ray Edwards. Mark Mason. Mike Stelzner. Pat from Smart Passive Income. It's Darren from Melbourne, Australia. Now is the time to live the life of your dreams and do the work you feel most called to do in the Welcome to the Cliff Ravenscroft Show. Here's your host, Cliff Ravenscroft. Welcome back, my friend. And in this episode, I am thrilled to share with you an enlightening conversation that I had with Michael Hyatt about his upcoming book that's releasing on January 31st, 2023. And our discussion was full of so many insights about mindset and how to transform your thinking to achieve whatever results you desire to get in life. This is one of those episodes that I am certain that you will want to listen to a second time so that you can take some notes. And because the original live stream set up our conversation perfectly, I'm just going to transition into that conversation right now. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another live stream. Cliff Ravenscraft here with my incredibly awesome friend, Michael Hyatt. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing great, Cliff. Thank you so much for having me on. I am delighted to have you on, my friend. I just want to say, for those of you who don't know who Michael Hyatt is, uh, he's one of the top three most influential leaders and mentors and personal friends in my life. So many different experiences of success that I have today, I can trace back to seeds of ideas. Something as simple as flossing every single day of my life without thought. (laughs) I know that sounds crazy, but Michael, do you remember when you did a post on flossing and how you can develop a habit like that? Man, I don't. I think I've never really been an advocate for flossing per se, but I've always used it as an example of a habit that can get put on autopilot because I literally, I'm at the, I'm at the place and you probably are too, where I cannot go to bed. I will be dead tired. It'll be two o'clock in the morning and I will not go to bed unless I floss. Yeah. Well, and and I heard you had stated that in as an example of developing habits. And I was not in the routine habit of flossing. I would floss maybe every six months when I'd go to the dentist (laughs) and they would have the most challenging time doing so. But I'm like, okay, well, let's let's give this a practice here. Let's I like to implement when I hear new insight. And so, as you said, for me, there is no way it, it would be impossible for me to brush my teeth without first flossing. I I can't even conceive of the possibility now for the last five to seven years of my life. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to know that I've probably saved your teeth. And, uh, you know, that's very exciting. Well, and also some other areas. There was back when I was making the transition from full-time employee, working for my mom and dad in the insurance agency. And I had this dream of creating a full-time self-employed lifestyle, doing this work that I love to do. I'll never forget the fact that I was struggling because I'm like, what's my business plan? What's my business model and all this other stuff? And by the way, still to this day, I've never formally created a business plan. 
But I followed you for seeking advice on how do I develop a business plan. And I came across a blog post that you did about creating a life plan. Mm. And it's amazing how many people today don't understand the importance of having a life plan. And so rather, I I dumped the idea of doing a a business plan, but I created a life plan and started to ask, what's my lifestyle? What do I want my work days to look like? How do I want my relationship with my wife to be? How do I want to show up as a father? Today, so much of what I was only dreaming of, oh my gosh, what this would be amazing. Today is a reality in my life because of that document. That's awesome. Well, you know, that document ended up becoming a book called Living Forward that I wrote with my former executive coach, Daniel Harkavy, and is still to this day my best-selling book. Yeah. So I encourage people to get that book. And one other area, and, and I'm going to stop showering all of my praises to Michael, but I just to give people an understanding of who Michael is beyond, you know, former CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishing. He's now New York Times bestselling author and all this. I want to tell you who Michael Hyatt is to me so that you can understand the essence of the value that you can get from this man. So another thing that I just want to say that I love about your influence in my life, Michael, is I was a content creator who had big ideas about what I wanted to create in this world, but I had a lot of reservations about my own value. And Mm. you're one of those people who saw value in me that I was having a difficult time seeing in myself. Mm. And you reflected a lot of things in me that I'm like, why is, so for example, you wrote your New York Times bestselling book platform, How to Get Noticed in a Noisy World. And you created a conference for this. You invited a handful of people in your community, your friends, to come and speak on your stage to your audience. And I, Cliff Ravenscraft, was one of those people. And at the time, in my content, this was back in 2012, and in 2011, I set 12 goals for 2012, and one of those was to become a professional paid public speaker. In February 2012, you paid me to be a professional speaker on your stage. And <laughs> as and, and, and it wasn't great. <laughs> I mean, I what I made what I lacked in skill, I made up for passion. And the information oh, and the inspiration was good, but my delivery was terrible. I I just I was not well trained at all as a professional communicator from the stage. But it was because of that that I was introduced to both you and Ken and then the SCORE conference. Mm. And that has, I mean, as you know, as, as a public yeah. speaker today, that has been a major transformation in my life. So thank you, Michael, for who you are. Well, Cliff, thank you so much. I forgot all those things, but that's amazing. And we are dear friends. You've stayed in my home. We've had late night conversations about a lot of different things. And it's always a joy to be with you. So thank you. I want to talk today about your book that's coming out, I think, January 31st. Is that correct? That's correct. And it's called Mind Your Mindset. What's the subtitle? The subtitle is The Science That Shows Success Starts With Your Thinking. The Science That Shows That Success Starts With Your Thinking. Mind Your Mindset. Now, I was very honored to have an advanced copy of this, knowing that I was going to interview you. And I've got a couple of questions that I put together. And first of all, I know that the original title was It's All in Your Head. 
you had told me in a text message, it's like, listen, this is the this is the title that I was arguing for, but market research showed that this other title. Tell me, why is the title It's All in Your Head? How does that title in your mind speak to the message or the overall theme of this book? Well, I think the reason I came up with that title, and I don't always come up with the titles for my books, but I did come up with that one. And I thought, you know, everything rises or falls on your thinking. Everything starts with your thinking. Your actions flow out of your thinking. Your results flow out of your actions. But if you go back upstream, it all begins with your thinking. So it really is all in your head. If you're getting bad results, guess what? That's in your head. If you're getting good results, that's in your head too. Now, the reason that it failed in the market research, and I mean, they designed this beautiful cover. I loved it. But when we tested it, some people thought, enough people thought that it was insulting that we had to change it. They, they thought, you know, it was a little bit condescending. Like if I said to you, like, oh, well, it's just in your head. You know, like somehow, I, you know, I can't take your emotions seriously or what you're struggling with seriously because it's all in your head. And of course, that's not how we meant it. But uh, that's why we had to go back to the drawing board and came up with Mind Your Mindset. Well, in the book, you do something that I've seen you do a number of times. You became very vulnerable. And you do this in a lot of your public speaking and, and stuff like that. And you talk about a conversation you had with an executive coach while you were at Thomas Nelson Publishing. Things were not going so great for the division. You had had a, a year that wasn't going so well. I wonder if you could tell a little bit of your experience of your, that coaching session that you had with Eileen that really sets the basis of your perspective on all of this neurological science. Well, I, I dedicate the book for my part to Eileen because she was an executive coach that had a profound impact on me because she was the first person that exposed me to the idea that our thinking is so critically important to the results that we're hoping to create in the world. She would come in at Thomas Nelson. I was the CEO at the time. I paid her an unbelievable amount of money, but she came in once a month, spent an entire day with me. And I, I like to say it was about half therapy and about half business coaching because she was always trying to get inside my head and inside my thinking because she knew that the results I was getting, both good and bad, by the way, were results of my, my thinking. So she comes in in early August and she said, so how did July go? And I said, not great. She said, what happened? I said, well, we were, I don't remember what the number was. We were like 10 or 15% short on the top line, the revenue. And uh, we didn't make money last month. And she was, she was like, well, wow, that's really surprising because last month when I was here, you were so confident that you were going to nail it. And I said, yeah, I know. She said, so why, why didn't you? What happened? And I said, well, we're in the midst of a global recession. This was 2009. And so obviously the economy is depressed. People are less reticent to buy. Consumer confidence is at an all-time low. I said, that plus our industry you know, the book publishing industry is going through a digital revolution. I don't even know what the place of physical books are anymore or if they're going to continue to sell. So we've been hit by that. And then finally, social media has upended everything. Everything we knew about marketing is no longer working. And we're trying to figure out the social media thing so that we can take advantage of that. So she patiently, patiently listened to that. And as she always did, she was taking notes and she said, okay, here's what I heard you say. I said, yep, that's what I said. She said, okay, she said, I want to ask you a kind of a hard question. She said, what was it about your leadership that led to these results? 
Cliff, it kind of made me angry. Yeah. I said, what do you mean? What was it about my leadership? I just got done explaining to you. I spent 20 minutes explaining to you why it wasn't my fault. You know, it was all this stuff out here. And so she listened patiently and she said, okay, I get that. I get that there's a recession. You're going through this industry turmoil. You're trying to figure out social media. But what was it about your leadership? I said, it was nothing about my leadership. She said, okay, let me approach it from a different way. She said, if we could go back 45 days or 30 days and you could do something different, would you have? Would you have done something different if you could go back? And I said, well, of course. She said, like what? And I said, well, I probably would have gone on that sales call with my sales team to Walmart and maybe even to Target. She said, what else would you have done? I said, I probably would have had a stand-up meeting with my team, you know, every day, just a quick meeting to find out the progress we're making on the sales so we could make corrections. And if I'd seen it earlier, I might've been able to do something. So I went, I gave her about four or five of these things. And so she finally said, she said, okay, so what you're telling me is that it was about your leadership and that if you had led differently, you would have experienced a different outcome. Mm. My head exploded because like that was one of those light bulb moments where I said, the problem's not out there. The problem's in here. It's how I'm thinking about the problem and about my leadership that is creating the problem or allowing it to persist. And that was, that was a revolutionary moment for me. I love the whole concept of how you express this in your own experience in that conversation, because as you're saying that, I am hearing your exact situation, your scenario, your conversation. As I'm hearing it, I'm reflecting the number of times when there are things out there, the circumstances that are outside, the, the all of the excuses as to why I'm not living up to the things that I have committed to achieving and, and all of this other stuff. And it, it helps me remind myself of the fact that I get caught up in my own stories and the, the narrative that I'm telling. And I believe everything that I'm saying because I'm an honest person. It takes somebody seeing something from another perspective because one of the things I love about your book, you talk about the fact that we're all limited to our own experiences of life, our own beliefs that we currently have, our perspective, like the way things we can see it. Sometimes, like for example, car accidents and it's like, tell us what happened here. You know, five different people could have five different stories of what they believe to be happened because they only see it from their perspective, which is a limitation. So I I love all of this and and it reminds me, it's like, wow, the value of coaching. I love the I love yes. that you said that you invested a, an incredibly large amount of money to have one day per month with a coach. And this is the value. This is why you make that investment, I would imagine. Well, absolutely. And, you know, we have a large coaching practice in our business at Full Focus. It's called Business Accelerator. And when we're coaching one-on-one, me or we've got 15 coaches now, when we're talking to a client, we're listening to their language intently because their language will reveal to us they're thinking. And so that's why we take notes. We write down phrases because we're trying to get access to what their thinking is. Like a, I'll give you another example. I can't remember, honestly, if I tell this in the book or not, but I remember one time hopping on an airplane and I had just sat down at my seat in the airplane and I got a call from my friend. And so I, I thought, well, I don't have much time, but we'll probably sit here on the gate for a few minutes. So I picked it up. He said, Hey, what are you up to? And I said, well, I have to go to San Diego to for this public speaking engagement. And he says to me, 
He said, wait a second, long pause. He said, did you say you have to go to San Diego to speak? And I said, yeah, I kind of knew I was in trouble. And he said, don't you think it'd be more accurate to say you get to go to San Diego to speak? Because as long as I've known you, you've wanted to have a full-time career as a speaker and a writer. And you're going to San Diego. I mean, it's an amazing place. And you get to speak and they're probably paying you a crazy amount of money. You're living your dream. I thought, oh my gosh, I am. But it was my language that enabled him to be kind of a mind reader and tell me what I was thinking. And I was seeing it through the perception of duty and obligation. And he helped me see that, no, this was a privilege and this was opportunity. And it was all in the language that revealed my thinking. I love that. By the way, that story is in your book. And, and, and so I want you to see something. So you know that I do coaching as well. One of the things that I keep as a document in front of me for all of my coaching calls, and these are the things where it doesn't matter who I'm talking to or what I'm coaching about, but the very first question I'm always asking is, what story is being told? That's and, great. And is the story true? And are there more empowering narratives possible? And then what reality is being created? Because we know that words create worlds. Yes. What words are being programmed and conditioned into the subconscious mind for us to live in alignment to as a part of our experience of reality? That is so good. And that's so congruent with our book, Mind Your Mindset. I want to go back and I want to make sure that we emphasize the idea of out there versus in here. So that's yes. that's the whole coaching story. And it's really the understanding that we have to figure out that our experience of life, while we may not be able to be in control of all the external circumstances, all of the conditions and stuff like that, we have an incredible amount of influence at times on the outside circumstances, but we always have control of the stories that we tell. So the next thing I want to ask you, Michael, in the book, you talk about the concept of the narrator. And I wonder if you can talk about that. Yeah. And let me kind of give you a metaphor for this. So I think of it like football. So I've got one of my grandsons. None of my kids have played football. I didn't play football, but I've got a grandson that loves football. He's a big Kansas City Chiefs fan. And so we've gotten into football. And as I've watched games, and I watched a lot of football this fall, there's always the commentators. There's usually two of them. And they're so what's happening on the field, somebody gets sacked and they lose 10 yards or there's a five-yard penalty or whatever. Those are the facts. Then there's the color commentators, or to use the language from the book, the narrators that are telling you what all that means. Mm. You know, and maybe that means that, look, they've really had a big setback. There's probably no way that they can create a drive that'll lead to a touchdown. They're behind. There's probably no way to catch up. They're telling you what all this stuff means. The meaning and the facts are two different things. There's what happened and then how you interpret or the story that you create. And the narrator is like this voice inside of our head that won't shut up. The narrator is constantly telling us what everything means. You know, that person that as we're walking down the hall, they frown at us. And the narrator says, well, you know, they're probably mad at you or they don't like you very much or they don't think you're worthy or whatever. So that narrator is constantly offering up these stories that frankly are, are often disempowering because it makes you think that the problem is out there, not in here. And so like really the first step in mindset, the first step is being aware that there's a narrator 
and that narrator is not you. So you got to listen to those sentences. You got to become aware of that, that narrator. And once you do, this is the gateway to stop being a victim and become powerful in your life again, to take the power back. Yeah. You just said something that triggered something inside of me that you are not the narrator or the narrator is not you. I just came across a book that I'm studying that we talk, it, it talks about how much beliefs control the way that we think and feel. Real problems start to occur when we begin to identify as being our beliefs. I am this yes. or I am that. I'm a procrastinator. I, I don't have self-discipline. These are all beliefs and we can become identified with them. And I came across a very powerful statement. I am not my beliefs. I am the believer. Oh, that's good. That's good. I have a similar kind of sign in my kitchen and it says, don't believe everything you think. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a a great sign. And it's a great reminder that we have the choice. We don't have to embrace these stories. You know, I'll tell you another story that happened. This is not in the book because it just recently happened. I went through a major health crisis this last fall. So in September, I had a mild heart attack after I was out running Gail, my wife, actually had to come pick me up. I couldn't make it home. Ended up going to the ER. They ended up doing an angiogram. And I had some major blockages in my heart. Uh, Despite the fact that I've eaten great, exercised consistently, all the things, but the genetics, that was truly something that I didn't, there's ways to take control of it now, but I didn't have access to those now or then. And so I ended up having a quadruple bypass surgery. So one of the things that happens when you have major surgery like that, heart surgery, is they put you into cardiac rehab. So this is a twice a week thing, which I was really skeptical about initially, but I've grown to love. But so I'm in there with eight guys. We happen to be all males. One day, this happened about two weeks ago, we're sitting around the table and the nurse asked us, she said, what does your heart attack mean to you? Hmm. Okay. So one guy says, and he was kind of on the verge of tears. And he said, well, he said, it means that my life is pretty much over. He said, I think I've crested the hill and now there's the long descent to my death. Wow. And I went, wow. I couldn't believe it. I didn't exclaim that loud because I just wanted to hear what he had to say. But he said, yeah. He said, "I, I just don't think I'll ever get back to where I was. You know, this is just inevitable. And, you know, this is the hand I've been dealt and I've just got to deal with it. Well, I had one of my doctors call me in the ICU after my surgery. And this was a doctor from Los Angeles. And he called me and he said, hey, he said, I just want to give you a little pep talk here. He said, everything that's happened to you up until this point, there's not a thing in the world you can do about it. He said, now you can feel good about the fact that you've taken care of yourself and it's going to make your recovery faster and all that. But what's happened has happened. You can't change the past, but he said, the future is wide open. Mm, Yeah. And he said, uh, he said, I really believe that your best days are ahead. You're going to be stronger than you've ever been. He said, I can tell you right now, you're getting more blood flow to your brain than you've ever had before. And, or at least in recent years, And he said, this is like a giant reboot for you. So he said, I don't want you to ever think about the past or to second guess it, but just embrace the future. And, and he said this without even knowing that it's something I say, he said, just embrace what this is going to make possible for you. Yeah, Totally different mindset. Totally different mindset. And that, that empowered me. 
So for me, even when I had that heart attack and the subsequent surgery, now I didn't say this in ICU, but soon after I said, what's the gift in this? It was such a gift. I had somebody come up to me two weeks ago, Cliff, that said to me, because I wrote this book called Your Best Year Ever, and we do this conference every year called Best Year Ever. And he said to me, he said, well, I guess it wasn't your best year ever, you know, and then kind of <laughs> laughed. And I said, well, actually it was. Yeah. And this heart attack and the subsequent surgery were part of it. I said, you have no idea what a gift this has been to me, but it's all about the story that we're telling ourselves. And that story is formed by our layer of beliefs that we have. And I know that you have this philosophy that life is always happening for me, not to me. Yep. And and that life is a gift. And, and every undesirable, unexpected, or inconvenient circumstance in life, there's going to be a seed of equivalent opportunity and growth outside of yes. it. I know that that's a part of your philosophy. So having that comes up with a different story in that rehab center. I imagine if you got to speak out loud, you probably spoke something along that nature. I did. And I did speak out loud. And I said, well, that's interesting that that's your perspective. Cause I'm not, uh, you know, could that just be a story? And I said, because let me, I told the, gave the credit to the doctor. I said, this doctor called me and I could just see him brighten up like, Oh, there's another possibility. Yes. And those aren't the only two possibilities. There's oh. probably a thousand possibilities. And again, we, it's, it's almost like we're writing this novel called our lives and we get to decide what facts are relevant, what facts are not relevant. What facts are, you know, there's a pattern in them and they mean something. What facts can be disregarded? But the meaning that we create is so critically important because that more than anything else will determine our actions in the present and the results that we get in the future. So that's why we have to pay attention to our thinking. Well, it reminds me of the scripture. It says, without vision, the people will perish. Yes. And when I think about vision, I think of images, right? I think pictures, vision, I see something. And what is it that I see? So without seeing something compelling, the people will perish. And what does it mean? What what word do we use to create images? We call it imagination. Mm-hmm. And one of the philosophies that I have is that I'm created in the image of a creator and of the creator. And as an in that image, I have the gift of creation myself. And that creative tool, one of the creative tools that I have is this ability to imagine futures. And so if I imagine, if I use this these images and I pick a picture, this is the end of my life. I'm the downward if I picture the downward descent. I'm going to do things in my life, my subconscious mind is going to work in alignment with what my beliefs are to make that a reality. So we get to create that future. Well, and to make that real, you know, if you really believe that you've peaked and you've crested the hill and things are going to go downhill from here, then what's the point of exercise? What's the point of eating well? You know, the best I can do is manage the decline. And just whatever happens, happens. I mean, it becomes a sort of fatalism when you're the victim and the problems out there. But all of a sudden, when you say, no, this is a reboot, I've got an opportunity to probably do my the best work of my life that's still in front of me. So I better take care of myself. I don't want to end up with another bypass surgery. So I need to continue to eat well. I need to continue to exercise, get plenty of sleep, invest in relationships, all the things that live to health, because I still got 
stuff I need to do, stuff I want to do. In the book, you talk about how we can overcome the limitations of the limiting stories. Our, by the way, the narrator doesn't always tell negative stories, but That's right. but but there seems to be a lot of negative stories produced by the narrator. And so specifically, when it comes to these inner narrator limiting stories, what are some of the strategies that you share in the book that you can bring here to this audience to kind of give them a, a whetted appetite for what they'll learn in the book? Well, let me kind of give you the overview of how the book breaks down because this is really how to address that narrator. The first thing we have to do is to identify the story. And that means we have to develop, and it takes practice, self-awareness about our thinking. We have to learn to think about our thinking. Most people don't do that. They're unaware of their thinking or they think that the story that they have equals reality. It doesn't equal reality. I'm not denying that reality doesn't exist out there. I believe there's an objective reality, but that's always processed through my perceptions. So it never comes to me just directly. I perceive it and then I knit it together into a story. So the first step is to identify the story. So whenever you're feeling frustrated or fearful or anxious, it's worth stopping, pushing the pause button, say, okay, what am I thinking right now? What are the sentences in my head, to quote Brooke Castillo? What are the sentences that are rattling around in my head? What is the narrator saying at this moment? The second step is to interrogate the story. What are the facts and what's the meaning I've assigned to those facts? Or what's the story that I've created that makes those facts make sense? And it's really important to distinguish between the two. Think of facts like a police report. The perpetrator entered the gas station at 6.59 a.m. That's a fact. Now, what that fact means, that's the job of the, the narrator or our job to interpret what that means. So facts and meaning are two different things. So interrogating the story and not just accepting at face value that what the narrator has to say is, quote, the truth, because often it's not. Then the third step is to imagine a different story or a different future and to say to ourselves, okay, are there any other explanations? Here's a story that we don't tell in the book, but it would be a good example of this. And it comes from the seven habits of highly successful people, Stephen Covey, where he's talking about being on a train. You may remember this story. And these kids are like, I think it would happen in London. These kids are just out of control. They're there with their father. The kids are acting up. They're running like, you know, wild animals all over the train car. And so Dr. Covey's really irritated. You know, he's like, good grief, man. Get control of your kids. Well, then the man finally apologizes to him and says, look, I'm really sorry about the behavior of my kids, but my wife just died. We've just come from her funeral and the kids don't know what to do with themselves. Whoa. Yeah. So he had assigned one story. This is a, a derelict father who can't control his kids. And there was another story, a story that was imperceptible to him that when he heard it, same set of facts, nothing changed, but all of a sudden he assigned a different meaning to it. And all of a sudden now he was compassionate and empathetic. He got it. Yeah. I love that example. I want to share a practice that I do that incorporates some of this journaling. One of the things I like to do, I, I had a situation come up not too long ago where we had a, a significant medical expense come up for our oldest daughter 
that was not covered by her insurance because she went out of network while she was out of school. And it was a significant expense. And then the very same week, our dog swallows a entire dryer sheet and is impacted and he's not well and he's at the vet. We don't know if he's going to require surgery or if he's going to make, I mean, it's it, there. And all of a sudden, for the first time in a long time, I found myself incredibly triggered. So mm. one of the things that I did, Michael, is I went into my journal and I said, okay, and, and, I, and I sometimes will write it as, as a prayer to God. So, Father, here is what I'm experiencing. And, the, and, and so I share the details. These are the things that have happened. These are the undesirable, unexpected, and very inconvenient situations that are happening. And I'm experiencing, I'm noticing, I'm aware that I have fear. I'm experiencing anxiety. I can imagine worst case scenarios. It's causing me to feel this way. This is why I'm coming to you because I need help. I'm not filled with faith right now. I'm just, I, I have a lot of worry, a lot of doubt. I express what the circumstances are. I express what I'm feeling, what thoughts are happening. And then I do this. But this is what I know to be true. Mm. Dot, dot, dot. And then I go to, I know that all things work out for the good. I know that this, and and I have all these powerful things that I have conditioned myself to believe that I have enough evidence to support. And then by the end of it, I said, and now here's what I desire. And in faith, I present these requests to you. And I give thanks in advance for these outcomes. Excellent. So that is that is my one of my practices is to journal in that way of evaluating the story and a powerful question is what do I have to believe for me to feel this way? Yes. That's a powerful question and it's helpful in journaling and I've been journaling now for about 11 years. I never thought of myself as a journaler. Gail challenged me. She said I think you should journal. This was right when I started this this company. And I said, I'm not a journaler, which by the way is a belief, Yep. you know, right? So I said, I'm not a journaler. And she said, well, why don't you just, and she tricks me so often like this. She said, why don't you just try it for 30 days as an experiment? And if it doesn't work for you, great. You don't have to do it anymore. I said, okay, I can do it for 30 days. Well, I got hooked on it. I've been doing it ever since. But one of the things I like to do is unpack my thinking in my journal and to ask myself the question. I have a series of prompts that I use, but one of the questions is, what was I thinking yesterday that was empowering? What was I thinking yesterday that was disempowering? Because I, I don't know if this is a, I'm an Enneagram three, you know, I don't know if that's the cause for it or it's the fact that I grew up in a family with an alcoholic father, but I have a sometimes difficult time getting in touch with my feelings and I really have to pause and be disciplined about it to, to kind of drive down to those feelings. But it's also a great way to unpack the stories that I'm telling myself. Another concept that you talk about in your book, especially for high achievers, is this leaning towards something called action bias. Can you tell us what that concept is and how action bias can lead us astray from the pursuit of our goals? Yeah, this doesn't probably affect everybody, but particularly for business owners, business leaders, high achievers, we do all have an action bias. In other words, we're kind of the ready, fire, aim group. You know, we want to do something, do anything, take action, because we know that actions are what impacts results. You know, if you want to 
make more sales, you got to make more sales calls. So double down and make more sales calls. But what we sometimes fail to do is to back up from the actions to evaluate the thinking because the thinking drives the actions, which determines the results. And so sometimes just doubling down and doing more action just wears us out. It doesn't accomplish a different result. I, I kind of came across this concept when I was doing my book, Free to Focus. And I said, the adage that everybody has in their brain is if, if you want to achieve more, you got to do more. That's like a cultural truism. Mm -hmm. If you want to achieve more, you got to do more. And so I said to myself, what if we could actually achieve more by doing less? And I just began to, to noodle on that a little bit. Like, I'd like to get big results. But I don't really want to work harder. I want to have a life. You know, I want to be able to give attention to my most important relationships. I've got some hobbies and all that stuff. That was not me doubling down. And so much of the productivity space is, okay, how can I get more done? You know, if I could just find the right task manager, if I could just find the right workflow, if I could just work harder, if I could get up earlier, if I could stay up later, and it's more, 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 more. Well, what if none of that was actually the issue, but it was our thinking? And I said, I wonder if how I'm thinking about productivity is what's got to change. And that was really what led to that book and what I felt like and still feel like at the time were some revolutionary concepts about productivity because I unpacked the thinking. And that's really where it's got to start. So before you're tempted to take action, if you're one of those people, you just got to, again, push the pause button and say, okay, before I take action, what is my thinking here? Could, could it completely change the actions I'm going to take? Because the actions you've been taking are just going to lead to the same results you've always been getting. If you're going to get new results, you're going to have to take different actions and you're probably going to have to do different thinking. You mentioned the fact that to really get in and ask yourself, what, are, what am I thinking? What story is being told here? That it requires a lot of self-awareness and self-reflection. So I wonder, Michael, what are some of the mindfulness practices and what are some of the tools and techniques that you use to become self-aware to help you identify and change thought patterns to improve your mindset? Well, journaling, which we already discussed, is a way for me to do a brain dump. And because sometimes I don't know what I think until I start writing. Yep. I used to jokingly say this about blogging when I became a blogger in 2004. Somebody said, what do you think about this? And I said, I don't know. I haven't blogged on it yet. <laughs> so there's something about writing that reveals our, our thinking. So I think that's hugely valuable. And if you're like me listening to this and you've never thought of yourself as a journaler, just give it a shot. I would say the other thing too is give permission to the people in your life to ask you the hard questions about your thinking. Mm. Because I said already that our, our language often reveals our thinking, but it's often difficult for us to pick it up. You know, we just say it. We're not really consciously thinking about every word that we're uttering, but our subconscious is ser serving those up and it reveals our thinking. But so for example, my youngest daughter, Marissa, she also works for our company. She will often say when somebody utters something disempowering, like, well, I could never do that. I could never be a public speaker. She will say, if you say so. And it's just a reminder that once again, oh, yeah, I need to, I need to wash my mouth. I need to, even more importantly, say, what is it inside of my thinking that made me say that? And is that really true? Well, no, it's not really true. 
So those are two practices I would say that are important. I think also another thing that can dramatically affect your thinking is, and this isn't a mindfulness practice necessarily, but it's surrounding yourself with people that have a mindset that you'd like to acquire or emulate. Mm, yeah. Cause if you hang around negative people who have bad mindsets, that's highly contagious. Yeah. It, you, you will catch the disease. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with, I think is what they say. Yeah. You talk about giving people around you permission, but also very much you give coaches that permission when you hire a coach and work with a coach. So I know coaching is a practice that you use. There is one other practice that I learned from you that has been incredibly valuable to me. And it speaks to the action bias part of it. You know, the more I do, the more I press into this, the more I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to make things happen. But a couple of years ago, you introduced to me the concept of having a daily power nap. It goes right along with a brand new belief that I was encouraged to test to see if it's true. Hmm. The more I rest, the more I receive. That's good. So are you still in the habit of regular routine power naps? And how does that speak to what's in the concept of this book in our thinking? Well, yes, I am. It's kind of like flossing. It is so rare for me to miss a nap. I take about a 20 to 30 minute nap every single day. And I've been doing that every single day for as long as I can remember from at least college forward. Even before I was a CEO and had control of my time or anything, I was working at a company. I'd find a spot to take a nap. I can remember one job I had when I was in college in the summer and I would go out to my car at noon. I would eat my lunch in about 10 minutes and I had an hour to be able to take a lunch break. And I would just snooze in my car for 20 minutes or so. Now, the reason for that is because when you're rested, you're creative, you're productive, you're emotionally resilient. When you don't rest, it's the opposite. I, I like what Dan Sullivan says, he says, you know, have you ever noticed that the, the more tired you are, the dumber everybody else gets? And, you know, it really doesn't have anything to do with those other people. It just has to do with your own resilience and with your own ability to comprehend and take in what everybody else is sharing. And, I, and as a regular practice, I sleep eight to nine hours a night and I track it religiously with my aura ring. And so I'm, you know, looking at my readiness score and my sleep score every day. And even if you're thinking, if you're watching this and you're saying, oh man, I'm not a very good sleeper. Well, first of all, that's a belief. guess what? That's a belief. And that will shape your actions and it will shape your results. Because if you're not a good sleeper, you're not going to sleep well. But if you said to yourself something a little bit more empowering, you may not stretch it. You may, you may not feel like, oh, it's a little disingenuous for me to say, I sleep great when you don't. But you might want to say to yourself something like, I'm learning to sleep better. Or I'm learning to sleep more. Or I'm learning the habits that lead to better sleep. And as it turns out, there's a lot of ways that you can engineer better sleep. We could do a whole series on that, but uh, sleep is something that I highly value. Yeah. And those power naps have been so powerful for me because there will be times where I'm getting ready to get on a coaching call with somebody who has, since our last conversation, really struggled to 
find some forward momentum on something that they're that's important to them. And they've given me an update prior to our call and say, hey, here's what we're looking to discuss. And I'm like, okay, well, now I, I've, I've, I'm hearing about the results that they've gotten. They've got these three questions right now in this moment. Nothing's coming to me. And I could try if I wanted to for the next 90 minutes or two hours to do some Google research and read a couple of things and try this stuff and blah, 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 blah. But I found an incredibly powerful practice, and that is for me to sit down and think about what is it that I'm about ready to do. I'm having a conversation. I know that this has been the experience of the person that's coming into the conversation. This is where their struggles. These are the questions they have. And I currently do not have the answer to them, at least in my conscious mind. So I believe somewhere deep within me and within that person, the answers are there. I trust and have faith that if I can go into this well-rested and in tune with my inner self, that I will be inspired and guided to ask the right questions to pull forth the answers that are sought. And I do so in faith and trust as I now lay down and take this nap. And then I'm out. That's awesome. And I wake up and every single time it's like, oh my gosh. And I ask a question that it even before the, like until the words came out of my mouth, I had not consciously thought the question. Well, I've had that experience a thousand times too. And, and this is the incredible power of the subconscious mind. One of the things that I've learned is to harness the power of my subconscious mind and do it deliberately. So if I have, for example, some problem I'm trying to solve or I'm trying to come up with an outline for a talk or something like that, I'll often prime my brain the night before and trust that I'm going to wake up with the answer or wake up with the outline. And Cliff, you've probably experienced this too. Uh, I mean, 95% of the time that works. Yep. And it's just, you know, the subconscious, our brains are not computers, but they're similar in a lot of way and they can be programmed. They are there to serve us and they will serve us if we understand the science and understand how they work and can can harness them for our good and for our, that bigger, better future that we're all trying to create. Well, in the book, Mind Your Mindset, that's coming out January 31st, you do have an entire section in there that talks about the other brain, the power of our subconscious mind. I encourage people to get this book. But before we start rolling down to the close of this conversation, for those who don't understand the power of the subconscious mind, I know that we're speaking to a lot of people who are like you and I, content creators, authors, speakers, thought leaders, influencers, business owners, and who travel a lot. We probably get up on stage or at least we attend conferences where we go and learn personally and professionally for our own development. So here's the way I love to illustrate the power of the subconscious mind. I say, and, and I'll ask this of you, Michael, and, and I, you and I have never had this conversation before, but I still know the answer to this. Michael, have you ever traveled long distance to go to another part of the world where the time zone is massively different that completely messes up with your entire sleep circadian rhythm and everything? where you spend several days at that event outside of your normal sleep patterns, and then when it's time to come home, you actually have to fly home early in the morning and you have one of the earliest flights out of the airport. Has that ever happened in your experience? Yes. Okay. Now, 
given the fact that you have to get up early in the morning and let's just say you need to be out of the, and get the taxi or the car or whatever at five o'clock in the morning from the lobby means that you, you probably need to be up about 4 a.m. And I don't know about you, but sometimes have you ever had a time where that the night before they have a little gathering and, and it's a an special privilege to be there and you get into your hotel room around 1 a.m. and you know you have to be up at 4 a.m. Has this ever happened? Yes, it has. All right. And then here's what I know. It's like, well, there's the question. My sleep schedule is totally off. I'm way outside of my normal time zone. I only have three hours to sleep before I get up. Should I even go to sleep? But that's a ridiculous question. We know that we're going to sleep. But then have you ever then said, listen, I'm going to call the front desk and say, can you do a wake-up call at 4 a.m., then program the alarm on your cell phone, then program the alarm on your iPad, and then program the alarm on your watch, all for 4 a.m.? Have you ever done anything like this? I have. All right. Then you exi- you, you like drop into non-existence. You are completely <laughs> unconscious. You are so exhausted. You are dead to the world. But... 10 minutes to five minutes before 4 a.m., you are woken up and you look at the time and say, wow, is it? did I sleep through the alarm? And you are actually awake at 4 a.m. Happens all the time. All the time. And the reason why is because what we have told ourselves through this, the auto-suggestion that we have programmed into our subconscious mind is, I must be up by 4 a.m. This is essential. It is absolutely important. I will be up at 4 a.m. I am taking all of these actions to make sure that no other outcome other than being up at 4 a.m. And and for me, not only have I always woken up before any of those alarms ever went off, but sometimes it's like 2.30 in the morning. Is it 4 a.m.? No. Okay, go back to sleep. And I'm out. And then it's 3.30 in the morning. Has that ever happened to you? Yes, totally. And it's so much so that I take advantage of it now and I'll program myself. I'll just like give myself the suggestion. And, you know, several years ago, I don't know if I told you this, but I got certified in hypnotherapy. And so I, I understand some things about the subconscious and especially when you're in that twilight sleep. And so one of the things I like to do is intentionally preload my thinking or give my brain a problem to work on or a command and just say, okay, you need to wake up at four o'clock. So now literally if I have to wake up, it's very rare for me to even set an alarm, even in a dicey situation like you described, because I'm confident that my my brain will wake me up at the appropriate time. Yeah, I love that. That's my favorite example to share because because when if you one. can resonate with that, then the thing is, is you don't have to wait until that dicey time to use this power. You have that power now. That's right. Michael, what is the end goal of the book, Mind Your Mindset? In other words, where will readers be when they finish reading this book? My goal basically is to help people create the life they want and the business they want and to do it faster than they can do through brute force. Because if you can adjust your thinking, it's like changing the rudder on a boat. You can go in a completely different direction. You can get where you want to get to faster if you change your thinking. I have had an example where I went through a a business that I founded in the 80s, went bankrupt in the early 90s. And of course, I felt terrible about it. I was humiliated about it. I was a lot of shame related to it. I beat myself up, all that stuff. And then I had a very close mentor friend of mine 
say to me a couple years later, we were sitting on an airplane. I can remember exactly what had happened, what he was wearing, what I was wearing. And he said to me, you're not very good with money, are you? Well, that got into my, almost my DNA. And so anytime I was facing a business problem or a money issue or an investment that I would like to make, I would have this voice whisper, the narrator would whisper to me, you know, you're not very good with money. Cliff, it took me probably 15 years to change that mindset because I wasn't aware of the thinking. I didn't know the thinking could be challenged. I didn't know that that was a story based on very scant evidence. And so once I did discover that, I became self-aware. Then I started to work on the story and I said, wait a second, is that really true? Maybe I just need education when it comes to money. Maybe I need to be around people that know how to manage money. And so it totally changed my outlook, but took 15 years. So the outcome that I'm hoping for Mind Your Mindset is that it would shorten the learning curve, that people could really become self-aware about their thinking, learn to think about their thinking, and dramatically increase the results, whether it's in relationships, in your health, in your business, whatever it is you're trying to create. If you can shift the thinking, you can get there faster and it can be bigger than you imagined. But again, it all starts with your thinking, and that's why I wrote the book. I think of books like Think and Grow Rich, Psycho-Cybernetics. I think of the Creating Lasting Change 10-Day Audio program from Tony Robbins, the Unleash the Power Within conference that I attended, Date with Destiny, and countless other personal and professional development books that help me understand the power of our mind, our thoughts, learning methods of controlling our emotional states, and basically changing the way that we think so that we can then feel and act the way that we desire. Countless hours of study that I've done And when I read your book, Mind Your Mindset, this is a resource guide of all of that stuff, all of that information in one condensed place. I highly encourage people to get it. Michael, where can people find your book? And do you have any special offers for people that go and pre-order this? We do. Uh, You can find it at mindyourmindsetbook.com, but use forward slash cliff. This will get you the bonuses. So over $500 worth of bonuses, including this amazing desktop coaching tool that we have called the self-coaching desktop tool, the audio book, don't buy the audio book. You're going to get that free when you buy the print edition or the Kindle version. And then also a course that uh, Megan and I have recorded all by itself is worth over $479. So that's what we'll sell it for once this promotion's done, but over $500 worth of free gifts just by going there, then buying the book and then enter in your receipt, you'll get access to all that and you'll get access to it uh, right away. Guys, definitely take Michael up on this offer. Get all your bonuses. Mindyourmindsetbook.com slash cliff. Again, that's mindyourmindsetbook.com forward slash cliff. All of those bonuses. Michael, I can't begin to say how much I love you and appreciate your influence in my life. I thank you for living the example that you live in this world and just for the human that you are. My life is better because you're in it. Well, thanks, Cliff. Love you too. And I'm so grateful for our friendship and thank you for having me on. Well, there you go. I always love every opportunity that I get to have a conversation with Michael Hyatt. 
This conversation today that you just listened to was filled with so many insights. In fact, I want you to check the show notes for this episode. There's a bullet point list of some of the takeaways and make sure that you understand each of those bullet points. Chances are, if you do listen to this a second time and take notes for yourself, you may pick out some additional insights that I didn't list in the show notes, but certainly make sure that you look at the show notes for this episode and that you captured all of the insights that I've highlighted. And as I get ready to close out this episode, I know many of you already know that I am a life and business coach and mentor and that I host paid mastermind groups for those who are full-time self-employed or in the process of becoming full-time self-employed. But just in case you haven't heard, the way that I think about this is not only am I a life and business coach, but also I bring the spiritual aspects as well. In fact, my specialty is helping you break free from any limiting beliefs, emotions, or behaviors that are keeping you from creating and living the life and that's keeping you from doing the work that you feel most aligned with and that will be the most fulfilling and the most profitable. In my coaching, I certainly bring all of my experience, education, areas of expertise, skills, talents, and abilities, and we talk about tools, techniques, and strategies, and all of that stuff, but I combine all of that and really set the foundation for what I do on spiritual wisdom that can guide you on a journey of self-discovery and personal transformation. This is what brings the most value to the table. If you're feeling stuck, unfulfilled, or like you're not living the life that you feel most called to live in this world, I invite you to head over to cliffravenscraft.com and check out the Work With Me page. There you can read about the Next Level Mastermind if you're a good fit for it, and if not, one-on-one coaching right there for you. In fact, I am passionate about helping you see the beauty and the potential within yourself. And I believe that you have the ability to create the life of your dreams, a life that is fulfilling, meaningful, and abundant. I look forward to the opportunity of working with you. Head over to cliffravenscraft.com, click on the Work With Me page, either apply for the Next Level Mastermind, apply for one-on-one coaching. I look forward to the potential of working with you. And until next time, I encourage you to take everything you do to the next level. Mindset and